loss helps us define our lives. By allowing grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. Get ready to be inspired, create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here's Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Gail Marlene Schwartz. Gail's a dual citizen, a relationship artist, and an above-average pianist. She's co-author of the books My Sister's Girlfriend and The Loudest Bark with Rebel Mountain Press, and a co-editor of the forthcoming essay collection, Boyhood Reimagined, Stories of Queer Moms Raising Sons. She's a founding editor of Hotchpotch, Literature and Art, a collaborative online magazine, also a freelance editor, writing coach, and writing instructor at the Community College of Vermont. Her soon-to-be-released novel, Falling Through the Night, shares the story of Audrey, a queer heroine searching for family while struggling with anxiety and questions of identity and loss. Gail lives in Montpelier, Vermont, with her partner Erin, and spends every other weekend in Montreal with her best friend Lucy and their teenage son Alexi. You can read more about her at gailmarieschwartz.com. Well, actually, I'm sorry, Cheryl, it's gailmarleneschwartz.com, not Marie. Oh, I thought I said Marlene. That's what I've got in my notes. Gailmarleneschwartz.com. Oh, sorry. Those, all those M words, easy to mix them up. Correcting me immediately because I have had the experience of like I'm I'm uh, pronouncing a person's name wrong or something and they don't let me know till the end of the show so I appreciate that timing is everything it is so I'm really happy to have you here and as we were as we were uh, talking about a little bit before we came on we have in common being queer authors who've written a book out of our own experiences, but of course, fiction is fiction. <laughs> I didn't write a memoir. I'm I'm hoping to, but I didn't, and you didn't either. But I felt as I was reading, like the themes in the book could not be written by a person who didn't have some connection to the themes. So let's let's talk about that. Your character has a pretty extreme anxiety disorder and panic disorder. Um, She's adopted. She um, isn't sure whether her her, um, second mother, her adoptive parent, can accept her as she is. She's not out. You know, she has so many interests, and she wants family. But uh, finding family with anxiety is particularly complicated. So I appreciated that you threw it all in there because we're complicated people and we do find family regardless because it's such a deep drive. So how did you, what part of yourself led you to write this book and um, how did you come to craft the story? as you were going along? Well, it's an interesting history for a novel because it actually started as a collection of personal essays about queer motherhood. 
And I was living in Canada. I was uh, with my partner, my ex-partner, Lucy, at the time. And I hired Betsy Warland, who is a lesbian Canadian author, amazing writer, somebody I had admired for a long time. Um, I got to work with her as a developmental editor. And and I was just not finding the structural through line with these pieces, but I knew somehow I wanted them to be integrated. And we met, and I remember sitting there in her living room with the papers kind of spread all over the place. And, and she just looked up at me at this moment, and she said something like, did it ever occur to you that this material might want to be a novel? Mm. And it was a terrifying moment because the idea of writing a novel had always been sort of exciting. I always wanted to write a novel as a girl. Um, I wrote this, you know, mini novel as a tween about these two twins who switched places, you know, nothing, nothing interesting, but, but it was nothing that I thought I could handle. I just thought it's too complicated. It's too long. It's too much time alone. I just had every possible reason to think this is not something I could do. But when she said that, it just clicked. And I was way more interested in the idea of a novel than I was in this the structure of this, you know, bunch of queer essays. And so that was kind of how it was born. And it, and it was a very strange way to start because I had a lot of structure, but it wasn't the structure that I wanted or needed. So I had to take all of that material and kind of massage it and work, you know, stuff things in between it and and find um, and find a through line, which actually was partially from another relationship I had with um, a former partner who was adopted, and I had actually given up a baby for adoption, so adoption was on my mind, and that ended up being one of my main through lines. And when I found that, it was thrilling. So that was kind of how this book was born. It was not born in any traditional way. So that was kind of a fun, it's a fun origin story for a book. It does resonate with me because I tried to write a nonfiction book for a long, long, long time. And then one day, I just thought this would be easier if I got to just tell the story through fiction. I had the opposite where it seemed like it was going to be easier, which was a shocking thought because I'd always been intimidated by fiction. Oh my gosh, you know, people write novels. What? <laughs> I always thought I'd do better at nonfiction, but it turned out, no. And now I'm actually in the midst of writing a memoir. It's harder. Wow. As it involves other people, will they like what I write or not? It's it's psychologically harder. Mm -hmm. Certainly, it's more complicated. It has a lot more complication. Right, exactly. So I resonate with that idea that there's something about fiction that lets you tell the story in a different way, doesn't it? I don't know if you're familiar with the writer Siri Husfeld. I'm not. She has a collection of essays and she's very eclectic as a thinker. And she talks about this, the trend of kind of more legitimizing memoir and truth over fiction. And her premise is that actually they're the same. And she brings in neuropsychology and talks about how the area of the brain that's activated when you're creating or imagining 
is the same area of the brain that's activating when you're remembering something. And I just found that in, in light. Yeah. The, the, we're here to talk about grief, right? That's how you got to this particular show. And um, it's true that if, in that area too, if people allow themselves to be creative in their grieving and not be so linear, they do better, yes. right? To free your mind and j just imagine and not be so tied to what you think ought to be happening. I, I wonder if that's the same phenomenon in a way. I have a feeling. I mean, I think our brains are not linear. Our our experiences are not linear. Our perceptions are not linear, and yet we're so directed into this linear linearity in in Western life. And I think when you surrender to the imagination, I just think you just you can just let go of that and let the truth of whatever it is you're trying to say come about. And maybe it comes about in a fictional character. Maybe it comes about in an image or you know whatever your the way that that impulse expresses itself, you just let it come. And, and I do agree that fiction just allows for that in this just crazy, colorful, it's just so much more, the palette is just so much broader, I think. I don't know. Did you find that in your in your writing of your book? What I found, I, th I think that I know what you're talking about, but let me um, put it in slightly different words. I found that it took on a life of its own in a way that I find hard to do when I'm writing about things that have really happened. Mm. Because when I'm writing about things that really happened, I am trying to be accurate. And actually it's impossible to be accurate because time goes on, you see it differently. Um, even a memoir, you're capturing an angle of the truth, not the truth, right? So I found, my, I found it undistracting. I guess is how I would put it. I just told the story. What is it I wanted to talk about? I wanted to talk about people making profound change in the midst of, of the worst challenges. And I felt free to do that. So, uh, and I think our, our main characters kind of have that in common, you know, trying to go forward from, uh, from loss experiences because anxiety is adoption is, um, and then as the novel goes on, of course, other losses uh, come to pass, too. Let's let people hear a little bit of the book, because I think that will illuminate a bit what we're talking about. Um, could you could you read uh, a bit from um, you and Jess talking about Max? Well, it's Audrey and Jess, but yes. Um, Audrey and Jess, sorry. That. That's okay. That's okay. So the setup for this scene is um, Audrey, Audrey uh, Jessica is Audrey's best friend, and um, Audrey has just met Denise, and she's very nervous because she's very attracted to her, and she's interested, but she's not sure Denise is interested back. So she and Jessica get together, and they watch their favorite film, which is Jurassic Park, and they eat pizza, and they have milkshakes. And this is the um, the last part of that scene. We get the food made and eat and scream and cuddle up with the Afghan. I do my best to push Denise into the recesses of my mind. We stare at the screen as the guy on the toilet gets eaten by the T-Rex. Before I leave, I remember that next week, the last week of June, is the second anniversary of Jess's brother Max's death. 
Are you going to do anything with your family on Tuesday? I try to sound casual, unintrusive. Jess gets up and starts clearing dishes. I wanted to go to the gravesite altogether. Christopher's flying in, but just for one night because he has back-to-back shows the next day. She rinses her plate for way too long. I get up and bring in the cups and napkins. How about your dad? I grab the sponge and start wiping the counter. He's got two pregnant cows who could give birth any minute now, so he probably won't make it. If dad doesn't need her, Eve will come. And of course, mom, while being mom, she hasn't returned my calls for at least a month. I try to catch her eye, see her expression. She won't look at me. Is there anything I can do? Jess picks up the last slice of pizza. Well, you could come over and make my bath and read me Ramona the Brave like last year. She stuffs the triangle into her mouth with her head tilted back, a piece of ham dangling near her chin. I can't help smiling. Ramona, bubbles, whatever you want, I'll be there. That'd be good, Meyerwitz. Her words are barely coherent through the chewed pizza. She gives me a tiny smile, first with mouth closed, then wide open. I shriek and chase her around the island, wielding a deadly pizza crust. Mm. Jess really touched my heart because Mm. she doesn't really find a way forward often. Yeah. (laughs) But she's very lovable. And I wondered if you if you've had people like that in your own life, you know, people who are so lovable but so lost in struggle that there's just not, you know, of course I encounter that in my work, but most people who come to a therapist want to want to go forward in some way or another. Um, not everybody has that in them to do. But it's interesting that you frame her that way because my best friend, Eleanor, who died um, by choice, by suicide, I would say she was lost, although she did try. She was in therapy. She was in 12-step programs. She really, really wanted to heal and just wasn't able to. But the thing about Jess that and it's funny because I have best friend characters and a lot of different stories. And, and my middle grade novel, uh, My Sister's Girlfriend, a friend of mine once uh, very recently said, oh, the ma- the best friend in My Sister's Girlfriend is like Jess, but when she was little. And it was so true. It was like, oh my gosh, it's the same, it's the same character. But she's such a, it's like the best friend that I always wanted and never had because Jessica knows how to be really present in this kind of strong, big sisterly, nurturing kind of way. Um, And she's not really able to take support in, but she can give it. Um, And I tend to be more like her. Um, And I've always wanted that kind of a person in my life. And, and I haven't, my, my current partner is, is like that actually. It's funny. I didn't think about that till right this minute, but, um, but in terms of a best friend, that hasn't actually been my experience. Um, at least not in my not in my younger life. Well, and I don't want to misspeak in terms of the power of addiction. That the um, pe- there are people who try and try and try very very hard, but cannot heal. Right. That whatever that is. So I I don't want to leave that out. Yeah. But that's sort of a tragic thing to encounter in the people you love because um, as Audrey grapples with the people you want to save and can't 
right? The people you want to help and can't, those are very hard things to come to terms with. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think what was interesting in reflecting on my experience with Eleanor, which does parallel some of the ways that Audrey wasn't there for Jess, um, just this idea of, I know we're trained to, to understand, well, no, nobody could save this person. And while I don't believe that any individual person could, I do believe there's a collective gap and there's a collective responsibility that I think we have to all share. And I do own some of that um, in my my friendship with Eleanor because I really wasn't present toward um, what ended up being the last part of her life. And I do regret that. And part of it was I was just terrified of her addiction. I didn't know how to interact with her. Mm-hmm. And so I backed away. And that was not the right choice. So I regret that. And also... Uh can be the right choice uh, at the moment because people in that kind of state can be so damaging, you know, and that doesn't help anybody. <laughs> but um, of course, when the end is terrible, it's hard not to to uh, kind of trail back to what you could have or couldn't have done. Uh, one of my used to say when someone kills themselves, they hang their skeleton in your closet which I think has some truth to it. Well, let's go to a break and on that on that note, but I'd like to come back and and talk about that more because it seems as if in the book um that loss then affects the family that Audrey's created so substantially. Um and of course that's a truism about grief that it's hard on relationship and I want to hear if you think if that was part of your thinking with Audrey. So let's go to our, our our break. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Every link and the email list are all there. And to find Gail Marlene Schwartz, go to gailmarleneschwartz.com. Be back soon. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. 
Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, Please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to goodgriefwithcheryl at gmail.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I've been talking with Gail Marlene Schwartz about her novel, Falling Through the Night. And... Gail, before the break, we were talking about how difficult it is to love someone who's struggling with addiction in particular. Sometimes it's hard uh, to, to, to sit well with someone who's struggling with anxiety or depression, any big internal state. Um, it's very hard to to know what to do. I mean, I'm very well trained in that. So I kind of know how to do that. But we're not trained how to just sit with people and be there. And you're saying that's what you wish you could have done. Just sit there and be there. Um, Hold space, as one of my guests calls it. Um, Do you think that um, perhaps you learned to do that better through that loss? I think I understood the importance of doing that better through that loss. I think I w- I think I've learned to do that through practice and through just connecting connecting around other perhaps lighter or lesser difficulties and learning just basic listening skills like how not to give advice and how to just reflect back what I'm hearing and and just to literally absorb what the person is um, expressing. But it's certainly not what we're taught as young people. We're taught to get in there and fix and solve and take over and all kinds of things that most people do not want, especially when you're having a hard time. For sure. And, you know, the the ability to be with in difficulty affects other aspects of the story, too doesn't it? Um, I I won't go into it because I don't want to ruin the plot entirely, but um, there are other friendships in the, in the, uh, in the novel that are deeply affected by the inability to be in hard spaces together. It seems as if it runs through as a, as a theme. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just, I just wonder if you, wanted to talk about that in the book or did it sort of fold out that way i think a little bit of both i i think something that i've experienced in especially as a younger adult that this 
inability to sit and talk and this and lacking the skill to do that, I think a lot of us just do anything that we can to avoid hard conversations and avoid the truth. And I think it gets us into really, really hot water. And I think it leads to a lot of what we're seeing now, which is just this like this ghosting thing that happens, which I find tragic and just heartbreaking for everybody concerned because it's it's just so not rooted in in the reality of our experience. I and mean, we can't just disappear somebody. Like that's that's not how life works. And and we deprive ourselves and we deprive our relationships, which are like third people, you know, you know, just disappearing. It, it's it's terrible. And I've definitely had rifts and and breaks and and um have felt just committed to really trying to not have that happen as much as possible. It just feels so 99% of time is it just feels unnecessary. Like just have the conversation. And and I, I'm I'm pretty good. I'm much better than I used to be. But um but I've made mistakes in the I've made big mistakes in the past and certainly have caused some of those breaks. And um, my mom, that's one of um, my mom has profound mental illness and that's one of her patterns is when something somebody does something that she doesn't like, she just cuts them off. So I've had a lot of schooling in that. And I have as a mother, sorry, what a risky person to have as a mother because in, you're always wondering what thing will <laughs> tip it. Right, <laughs> that's a scary place to live, isn't it? Right. Yeah, I, and it's certainly not who I wanted to be as a mother or as a friend or as a citizen, for that matter. I feel this sort of circles back around to what what uh, we ended with the the last segment around how um, inability to grieve or grief itself intrudes into our relationships because I do think that there's what we can't face is a loss not faced. Uh, you know, there's always loss in there somewhere, and then we think we can just get out of it by nixing the person uh is that part of what we're talking about from your point of view yeah uh, and i and i think this idea of i was writing about this in my my facebook today because i actually heard somebody talking on another podcast about this new ai thing where they're i don't know it's called i, I shouldn't say what it's called but they're trying to develop these ai characters who are people, so you don't actually have to grieve. And I remember the person who started this company was talking about grief and saying, there's nothing positive about grief. Why can't we just get rid of it? And I was just just horrified because again, it, it flies in the face of our human condition, the truth of our human condition, like we die. We have to face it. That's part of growing up. And if if we don't face it, it just comes back in, in this sort of tsunami-like ways that we're not expecting. And it just hits us on the side. And I'd rather just go into it face forward. And, well, um, and then sometimes I'll say to people, um, imagine that every challenge you ever faced, because they are all lost experiences, Every challenge you ever faced is suddenly erased. What else would go with it? Because your book, my book, this show, lots of things come out of challenge, but come around to beauty eventually. Well, and it's not one or the other. Like it's, it's, it's all of that. 
Exactly. So I can't really imagine life without, um, and I watched that with parents. I think I was in danger of this when my kids were little. You don't want them to hurt, but I'd rather actually go in the direction of hurting them hurting with support, (laughs) you know, because how do you get out of it? I can't imagine there's any AI good enough to convince me that the person didn't die also. (laughs) That was really just, it made me so sad, actually, just to listen to that. Because I do think, I don't want us to cut off parts of ourselves. (laughs) Like, we're we're beautiful. Our lives are beautiful. Life is beautiful. It's really hard. Who wants to go into that depth of sorrow and despair and that kind of like the cry that goes to the belly of your body. Like it's not that we want to go there, but once we go there, we have access that we won't have any other way. It's the only way I think, I think that's just me, but what happens to love? If you take away what happens when you lose love, I I don't know the answer. (laughs) Almost like yin and yang, right? The loss is part of the, presence you can't have presence without absence it's essential it's essential i feel that will probably backfire (laughs) i hope it does i mean no no offense like i always want people's enterprises to you know to be successful but i i just don't think again it, it just we're in this we're also in this phase in this society where we're there's just so much denial of Things that are like what matters to us. Well, the planet, for one, like that's sort of no brainer. And uh, we seem to think that we can do without that. So I think we're in this. We have to be we have to be facing reality as as clearly and directly as possible. I think. We're speaking the same language there. And and I would say that's reflected in, um, you know, in your in your book. Because it's all about not cutting the corners. Before we came on, we were talking about, you know, the um, preference in lesbian literature, I think in particular, to be positive. And what people mean by that is nothing hard happens. Or if it if it if it's a little bit hard when the couple's getting together, it's it's you know, happy ending at the end and that leaves out so much of life um on the other hand i'm old enough to have been right on the cusp of every novel doesn't have to have a lesbian death in it you know they don't all have to die tragically at least right but i'm just hoping my character didn't die tragically i guess i'll put it that way in my own book so let's let's i would like you to share because it's Everything you chose to share today is so um, uh, has depth about the the grief elements in the book. Could you share a little bit um, from when the friend in the book has has taken her life? Yes. So this scene takes place. Um, Jessica has died a couple of days before this. And Audrey has gone to her family's home and the the family's having a preliminary meeting about organizing the memorial service. 
When I first walk down the muted gray hallway to the living room where everyone is sitting, I want to bolt. There's Eve and brother Christopher. Jessica's mom and her mom's boyfriend are there, and her dad, Frank, is on the recliner. And, big surprise, there's Bill, her boyfriend, across from me on the single section of the sofa, by himself. I want to jump in my Honda Fit and hightail it back to Montreal, cuddle with Denise, nurse my baby, hide in my basement, sketch cute kittens. Instead, I make the mistake of holding eye contact with Christopher, who looks like he's been crushed underneath the Zamboni. I walk over and collapse into Chris's arms. All of us, except Bill, sardined together, taking comfort in each other's warm bodies. Bill is sitting in his bubble, weeping and weeping. I think of leaving the warmth of Christopher to comfort Bill, to include him somehow, but there's something about his energy that keeps me away. I look at him and he glares back. My heart speeds up and I have no idea what's going on. The minister talks and talks, but I can't pay attention because of the emotional intensity in the room. Ripped apart people. I want to attend to them, feed them something, just by being there, like passive solar energy. Sit, breathe, emit love. Maybe somebody feels a tiny moment of relief. Christopher releases his arms, and I get dizzier and sweatier, so I switch spots and mush myself next to Eve. She clutches me. I think about the intervention that we never did. Does she blame me? Do I blame me? But I don't get too far into the questions. Losing Jessica is an experience so magnified that every other impulse, thought, dynamic, or subtlety is crowded out of my heart. All I can be is devastated. I think that especially captures the kind of grief after someone takes their life. Mm -hmm. Who's at fault? Who's to blame? Is it me? Is it him? Is it her? You know, how could this not have been? Because that happens in, in deaths that don't come by suicide, but it is, um, the person can be convinced more easily that's not rational, right? To me, in suicide, you almost think it is. Do you agree? I think the question is there in a much more vivid way, for sure. And when your own friend died, could you be with her family? Because, in fact, you fell into each other's arms. Audrey fell into the arms of the family in your book. That also doesn't always happen. Um, you know, there can be a lot of conflict. Uh, you're describing it as intensity, not necessarily conflict, except maybe with Bill. <laughs> but I wonder if that's an experience you've had. I, in my exp well, the comp the complication of of that was um, that the boyfriend had is very wrapped up with the addiction and all kinds of other issues. So um, that is a dynamic. I, I certainly didn't experience that. Um, I don't think there was a lot of blame and um, anger in terms of finger pointing, mm -hmm. at least in, um, I mean, and I think, I think it's, it's a very nurturing family, the sibling group, and um, they actually lost another um, sibling to addiction. It was very devastating. That's another reason why I 
um, her particular death was even harder. Um, the brothers wasn't a suicide, but it was a, it was an overdose. So it was, it was just awful. It was awful. And it's not that uncommon. You know, they say suicide is more common in a family where suicide has happened. But I also think that kind of slow suicide, which addiction can be, right? Um, but then the, the devastation to everyone else, how does everyone else heal from that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't... I, I mean, my family is very fractured, but it's not fractured in that way. It's fractured in a different way. So I don't have direct experience with that. Mm -hmm. Just observed experience. But I have to say that the, the way you convey it in the book shows understanding. Uh, mm -hmm. Having heard so many stories of so many people, um, you have to be willing to try to imagine what that is actually like, not to just say, oh, I can't imagine. You've obviously imagined. And that's part of what you, I would assume, have to offer the people in your life. Um, but it sure shows in the book. Thank you, Cheryl. It's a, good, it's a compliment. You are very welcome. Let's go to an, a second break and we'll come back and talk some more. Uh, listeners, you can go to goodgriefwithcheryl.com. You can go to the Good Grief host page to find me and everything about me. There's a link to my novel at, at the Good Grief page as well and, and at my website. To find Gail Schwartz, go to gailmarleneschwartz.com. Back soon. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Mm -hmm. 
listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to goodgriefwithcheryl at gmail.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Gail Marlene Schwartz about her novel, Falling Through the Night and All Things Grief, Loss, and Transformation. And um, I wanted to kind of pull out a part of the book that I found really meaningful, which is the way that Audrey uses creativity to face every challenge. Um, sometimes um, frenetically, you know, and and with a lot of anxiety behind it, but often it it feels so healing to me the way that she um, creates things to to carry herself through um, difficulty. Um, she's an artist. But I wonder if maybe you do that with writing or or something else. Is, is that familiar to you, carrying yourself through things um, with creativity? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I, I do visual art. I mean, she's, Audrey's a professional artist, so that's really her training. But when, I, actually writing does not have that same transformational role. I, ha- I can write when I'm past something. Um. But for me, I'm very physical. I have to do something with material or music or dance. Like I have to physically embody that. And that was actually a lot of fun to write, um, particularly the scene at the end when she's processing her other friend's passing and how she, her, you know, relationship to that event and her choices and the way that the emotions and the physical manifestation of the project that they're they're sort of evolving in parallel and that was really fun it was a very fun scene to write because um part of it came out of my imagination and part of it also came out of some physical projects that I've used to move myself in a in a way through things that were just too scary otherwise it just it feels very grounding to have something to grab and to tear or to glue or to make noise or, you know, just the, I'm, I just want to be in my body. And her thing is very physicalized and, and. I'm in a gospel choir. That's how I do it. Wow. (laughs) Because that's very, that's the most physical music I've ever encountered. (laughs) Took a while. It's amazing. It's it's crying on pitch. And that's what. It is. Absolutely. It's grief music, but, but. As you were saying on the break, you know, let's let's get around to the the end of the story, which is quite positive, but um, that's sort of a parallel because um, at the end of what Audrey creates, there's there's something beautiful, right? At the um, praise music is grief music made beautiful, right? I mean, it's um, it's. It's parallel, and I also don't write when I'm in deep grief, so mm-hmm. I resonate with that too. That's not I do other things. Music usually I do music. So um, talk about you know I would say Audrey goes through many many very painful things 
about which the book is very honest. And at the end of the book, I would say there's a very, uh, you know, she's going to be okay. I, I guess I want to say it that way. Uh, maybe you can talk more about the going to be okay. You know, that she's she's kind of found her way differently. Yeah, I, I'm not a necessarily a fan of happy endings in the traditional sense, but I'm also, I understand the the need to land somewhere and to evolve to a certain point that is satisfying in a story. And I think we live that. Um, one of my new favorite expressions is that mess and success can coexist. And I think that is something that she discovers that this this collage that she makes, it, it is a mess and something amazing happens. You can't take the mess out. Mess is an integral part. So you've got these two things, this, this mess and then this you know success for lack of a better word, but this beautiful manifestation of healing and 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 moving forward in one's life or transforming or just coming to the next phase of of becoming and i think that's very positive and i've i've lived that i've experienced it it's not linear it's more like a spiral it's not like you never go back i don't feel very pollyanna about that um at all i know that that's not true and yet there are these threshold moments where we feel like we've arrived and it's different. Like we look out on the vista and we see something different or we see the same scene and we see it differently. Our, our lenses are different and we've been affected in a, in a way that we just didn't predict, couldn't predict. I think that's where she, that's where she lands. I, I, I got that out of it. And of course that speaks to me because the, what people on the outside would say is the worst thing that ever happened to me grew me the most and totally different because of that experience. Maybe not totally, but almost totally. <laughs> so you can connect to other people. That's I think the thing that I've experienced that I am much, I teach at a community college and I'm in such a better place to connect with my students because I've dealt with my own anxiety issues. And they go through, there are so many of them right now, post-pandemic, they are struggling like nuts. And I understand, and they, I never try to BS them. And I talk about myself, not in a, in a coachy kind of way, but just a way to say, I know what I've been there. And you know what, if you can't do it, I'm not going to judge you. I think you can do it, but it, you know, sometimes it's not the right moment. I feel as if, in a sense, and I'll bet this is true of your students, you can feel that on a person when yeah. you don't even need to say it. People can feel when you don't have an agenda for them. Don't you think? Yeah, totally, totally. And I have that. It's funny. I was my my son was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, and my mom has a diet. So I'm I'm ninety nine point eight seven six percent sure I'm on the spectrum. Um, and I feel like I have that intuition, um, that felt sense of when someone's being authentic. And it's like, I can, I can like miles away, I can spot it. And I can spot the converse too. And I just can't, I can't, I can't, like, I can't engage in that way anymore. It's not possible. Sometimes that's a problem. Sometimes you have to be fake and it's very hard, but yeah, totally. No, you can read it. And my, and, and, uh, 
I think that's why my students trust me because I don't, um, I don't BS them. Sure, that's true. Let's share one more, one more part of the book before we leave each other today. Um, would you? Yeah. So this is this is that middle part where Audrey is processing uh, a second death in her life, and she is in the process of making this collage. Sleep is scarce, and I'm often in my studio where the darkness is heaviest at one or two in the morning. One night, I'm roaming the kitchen, foraging. I open the armoire looking for some life cereal. There, I find the box of teas from Costa Rica in that exquisite packaging, the box Sabrina and Clara brought back for us from their trip all those years ago. Yes. The next day after client appointments, I remove the tea leaves from each metal canister and start fiddling. I jot down notes and measure the circumference of the circle slots and the canisters. Sweat runs down my temples and my throat is tight. The next night after Denise is asleep, I go back in the studio, sinus is pounding. I sort through my photo files on the computer and choose 30 shots of itchy mortal gatherings and print them out. I cut the photos out and place them inside the box. When I leave to go to bed, I'm clutching my stomach. Over the holidays, I make handmade paper from photo scraps mixed with dried flowers and dye from berries, turmeric, and beets. In January, once all the paper is dry and set, I tear it up and start gluing the torn pieces onto the cover of the box. I keep at it through the winter. I keep embellishing and embellishing, glue, acrylic, glitter, stamps, pastels. My stomach continues to rebel. The project's momentum pulls me into a swirl of pain and resentment, love and anger, compassion and confusion, self-hatred and a yearning for wholeness. One night after working, a burst of nausea pummels me into the bathroom where I almost miss the toilet. I push myself, often staying up until 2 or 3 a.m., tears slowly replacing physical anguish. The more intricately beautiful the piece becomes, the more desperately sad I feel. Finally, I get the project wrapped, address it to Claire, and mail it the Thursday before Easter. I come home to an empty house, walk up to Adam's room, grab the container of Lincoln logs, dump them on the floor. I take each log and make a giant circle. I lie down in the middle on my side, curled up. There, I begin to heal. That so captures that process of, you know, there's art that people think through, and then there's intuitive, creative art, and that seems to be the kind that helps with healing. Uh, in my experience, it and it feels to me as if people who've deeply grieved are better at surrendering to that. If they've if they've let the grief happen, it's not as scary to just say, "I don't know." <laughs> Is that true in your experience? I never thought about it that way, um, and I do, I have an MFA, and I have friends who are visual artists, and I'm thinking about the ones who are more strict modernists who do more realistic and you might be right uh, they tend to be a little more buttoned up a little more conservative a little less comfortable with chaos mm -hmm. and i don't necessarily know their backgrounds but you yeah you could be right certainly if you're not comfortable with uncertain if you're not comfortable with not knowing it's going to be really difficult 
And most people aren't when the grief hits them. <laughs> That's what I find with clients. I, and it, it is terrifying because you just think this is never going to end. I'm just going to, I'm just going to feel terrible forever. However, I do want to put in a word that um, I had that feeling long before my wife died. Long before. But because we were actively with it, I didn't feel that way when she died. Oh, that's I interesting. felt like, wow, I'm having a bunch of huge feelings. I, I wasn't in any resistance to anything, and I wasn't scared of getting through it. It just was a lot. But that was fine with me. Does does that, you know, harder moments were earlier when it made me terribly anxious and scared of the future and all the rest of that. That was in the course of her illness, not when she died. So we can prepare. I always like to make a note. <laughs> you know, we can we can't be prepared, but we can prepare. Yeah, that's a great phrase. I like that a lot. Well, and I think also just allowing ourselves to be sad about smaller things and just making this habit of connecting with ourselves and expressing what we feel. It sounds so cliche, but I do think it's true. I think we're, we're so trained to put on a face and to not reveal and to be positive. I mean, all those messages. And if you don't think positive, there's something wrong with you and character, character flaw and all that crap. Right. If it's, if it's not feeling positive or happy how do we get rid of it that that's how i would put it that's the the ai thing you were talking about too right and, and i mean the, the reality is we can't we can't and the second we accept that then we can be with it in a different more loving accepting way which i think is the only way through once i was with my daughter and my grandchildren and the there are two boys there's also a girl but she's much younger the two boys were having at it they were really going to town and she grabbed the one who was the instigator and looked them straight in the eye and said you seem to be having a lot of feelings what's happening <laughs> and I was like, that's what we all need don't we when we're just out of our minds we need someone to say wow that's a lot what's going on <laughs> yeah, so, and, and, and to listen and to to not just dismiss the person which is typically what we do with kids or, or even worse to punish you know it's just so misdirected yeah that's um it takes a lot to be that parent because as i'm sure you know because um i know i didn't succeed every moment but that is a template of what we all need we just need someone to say what's going on and if you don't know to to let that be okay Oh, you don't know yet? That's fine. I'll be here when you figure it out. <laughs> I've really enjoyed our conversation, Gail. Thanks for joining me on the show. Me too, Cheryl. It was really, really rich. I appreciate it. To find Gail Schwartz, you can go to gailmarleneschwartz.com. Next week, I'll have Wen Peets to talk about her book, Inner Child Healing. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Espinosa-Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Have a meaningful week.